0: Welcome to Front and Center, from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields, where awakening people from all sides come together to help write our new story and build upon America's sacred purpose, unity and diversity, while expressing their individual freedom in the context of sacred community. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Maxeni and Steve Behrman.
1: I'm Steve Behrman. Welcome to Front and Center, my podcast with Michael McSente from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields. And to introduce our guest today, I'm going to turn it over to Mike. Thank you, Steve. Well,
2: today we're honored and pleased to have what what I refer to and other members in the Common Sense Party leadership group as a potential poster child for the Common Sense Party and the type of candidates that we hope to help get elected here throughout the state of California. High quality people uh, who've demonstrated integrity to their actions and to their words. Uh, Maria, coincidentally, sent an email in through our website that I wanna use to to open the conversation with her because it it speaks to her commitment uh, and where it goes. Back on March 15th, and this was before the primaries, Maria went into through the Common Sense Party website and she sent an email, starting a chapter in in Senate District Four. Good morning. I am a candidate for State Senate District Four running as a moderate Democrat. My campaign is based on the principles of the Common Sense Party. And as you can imagine, The Dems are not happy that I stand for the people and not the party platform. I am hoping to speak to someone who can help mentor me in starting up a common sense chapter. I am ready to volunteer and have been actively campaigning. In service to community, Maria Alvarado Gill. And that is what led us back in mid-March, right after the papers had been filed Uh, as she was one of eight candidates. It's been quite a journey for Marie to go from somebody who, when we first talked, she had less than $5,000 in her bank account for the campaign. Marie, would you, before we really get into it, would you go ahead and give a brief bio to the audience uh, of your background
0: of course, and uh, thank you for uh, bringing me back to that moment. Um, it is uh, meaningful to how we got to where we are today. So I am Marie Alvarado-Gill, and I'm the candidate for State Senate District 4, which encompasses 13 counties in California. So that's about a fourth of uh, the area in California. So that's a, a lot of um, a lot of responsibility in this role so I, I don't take it lightly. Uh, I am a mother of three and an educator by trade. Um, I've served in the public sector now for two decades, uh, in both health services as well as education. I'm born and raised here in California, and I, you know, have an atypical story. But the reality is that um, I have been able to live the American dream, that California dream, that so many uh, families who come to the to the U.S. Uh, to immigrate to the US, have for their children. And you know, I take that as a, as a sense of privilege. And with privilege comes responsibility. And so um, I uh, you know, raised my kids in the spirit of generosity, in the spirit of giving, um, and have modeled for them uh, both as a, a executive in the nonprofit sector, as well as a leader in, in healthcare care access, and now in education equity. So, I'm really happy to be here. Um, I have uh, tried to serve my my party as best as I could, um, both as an elected delegate, um, helping to pass ballot initiatives and uh, elect high quality uh, people at the national level and state and the local level. And uh, just found this opportunity to really like put put my uh, put my boots on. And a walk the walk that I've uh, been modeling for not only my own family and my community, um, but throughout my lifetime.
2: Thank you. Steve, would you like to start us off with a question here? I think you're muted there, Steve.
1: My lips are moving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you started out with a, with a very uh, small little war chest there, $5,000, and yet you ended up as the, uh, number two ranked candidate. And so you're in, you're in the race. How did that happen? How did you get, uh, that kind of, um, uh, uh, recognition uh, without any kind of party affiliation or a party, uh, uh, endorsement? Let's say. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That, that, that certainly is a, is, um, kind of what, what our campaign is, was based on, right? It, it is based on. So I, in sought out the uh, endorsement of uh, my party and, and tried to compete, but when I saw the list of um, requirements, things that I had to sign on to and agree to, I couldn't in good conscience sign that, and so I um, I, I did not uh, seek the endorsement after all. Um, I felt it was important to stay firm on my core values, um, my, my own beliefs, and not let a a potential uh, win in a primary or general election uh, move my thoughts. And the reason that was so important to me is because ultimately I'm stepping into public service uh, not to celebrate myself, not to gain power, but really to serve, to take that other level of service and represent over a million people that uh, live in Senate District 4. And so for me, um, it's important to have integrity and transparency and who I am as a representative and who I am as a leader and to let the voters decide. And not because I have a D by my name or an R by my name, but really uh, who am I as a representative in the district and what is my integrity as a leader? So the $5,000 is right, Um, right before (laughs) the primary, we got uh, another, uh, we got a match donation. So we raised about $10,000. And for me, I really wanted to raise enough money to uh, cover my candidate statements and my filing fees. Well, I was about $8,000 short. So as you can imagine, even to run as a candidate, um, I needed to have at least $20,000 in my pocket, which frankly, I did not have. And many people just like me don't have, but I do believe in democracy. And I believe in that ability to run um, as a qualified candidate and really represent the district. And so, um, you know, I looked at the numbers and knowing that this is a, a split district, I mean, four points up on Republicans over Democrats, but a wide swath of no party preference. Um, people just like me who don't subscribe to one ideology or the other, you know, don't completely agree with the far left or the far right. People who haven't had their voices heard in Sacramento. And so for me, this, this has been a campaign of courage from the beginning. Um, I have not wavered on on those core values and that integrity. Um, Yes, we're fundraising, we're continuing to fundraise and fundraise strong, but not at the cost of the integrity of the campaign, not at the cost of who I am.
2: Great, Uh, I'd like to ask you a question here. When you first announced that you were running, what was the reaction of the Democratic Party uh, to you?
0: Yeah, yeah, well, I serve on my central committee um, in my local county and um, the so the endorsement process was was kind of interesting it was kind of like oh someone raised their hand let's just everybody get behind this person and i started asking the questions about well what qualifies this person and i was kind of told well we don't care they just they have a they're a democrat we're just going to go behind them we're going to stand for them and the the window for filing was still open and so i thought that was odd i said you know um, as a democracy we have a filing uh, deadline and that filing deadline has not been met yet And that still gives opportunities for other candidates to come through. Shouldn't we just kind of like wait? Um, So I lost lost that argument, Um, but I did continue to ask questions of of the party and other central committees. And um, I kind of uh, put it out there and I said, you know, well, I'm thinking of running because I don't believe that um, our one uh, candidate with the D behind their name uh, represents the values of our district as a whole. I see that they represent the party and I and I respect that, but I don't think that this is true representation of Senate district four and I got crickets. (laughs) Um, People didn't quite know what to say to me other than well why don't you run for something at the local level or you know, maybe in four years you know we'll help train you we will help make sure you get to the right place. And, you know, frankly, I was a little offended. You know, I I have a master's in in public administration. I've served in executive levels of of organizations and companies for over 15 years, raised three kids on my own, born and raised in California. And, um, you know, I currently serve as the chairperson of of Chart House Public School, a a charter network that I helped to to lift off the ground from the inception. And I've opened three successful charter schools. And so for me... um, that wasn't the response that I that that I expected as a as a uh, as a Democrat that has served in various leadership roles. Um, so I just kind of I took that as a calling. I took that as is is jump in there and uh, let the voters decide. So um, so that's what I've done, and that's what where uh, where we are now. But I sh- I can definitely share that's been a bumpy road. I mean, there has not been a consensus that that I am uh, you know the anointed candidate. I'm, I, I'm not. I don't have the endorsement. Um, but we've seen in this in this journey that, you know, not only some of our state legislators who are, you know, leaders in the party as, as Democrats have come in support, have come in support of, of our campaign and will um, have been mentoring me and have continued to uh, kind of help guide this campaign. And I feel very fortunate for that.
2: Great. Three charter schools. That's kind of uh, yeah. an asthma to... Uh, <laughs> what you would typically find from a democratic candidate uh, who's under the thumb of the leadership uh, that they don't want to uh, allow those in. And yet, uh, if I understood you correctly in our private conversations, I mean, you're about education for all of the kids in, in whatever way we can raise that level. Um, since education is your your main background, let me ask you a couple of specific questions that I'm sure people will be asking and wondering about. The first question I'd like to ask you is, what are some of your thoughts about the new high school ethnic studies effort to assure more compassionate
0: communities? Yeah, yeah, I I, I think the key word there is, is compassionate, right? Um, and you know, we we as a society um, are so divisive in, in terms of, of the issues that are being spread on the media. Um, certainly at the national po- politics level, we've seen um, some very cruel and, and frankly, violent extreme um, divisive pol- politics. And I fear, um, and I, I don't use that word lightly, I fear that that is the culture in which uh, our young people are, are being educated, right? Um, not necessarily in the classroom, but just in society in general, Um, educated through social media, educated through, um, you know, access to information through their smartphones, right? Um, Education is all around us. And so an an effort to bring uh, compassionate communities, the the notion of the the mindset of into a high school setting, I think is, Mm -hmm. is heroic. I think that it gives our young people that opportunity to Uh, really build within their identity the who of who they are and and who they are in in the society around them. And to give them the tools and the language and the freedom to push back on what they believe in and what they don't believe in. And to find other people that can align with their, their values and their ideals. Because young people are still building their hearts and minds. They're still trying to figure out um, who they are and, um, and what value they bring. And so for me, I believe that the effort to bring compassionate communities into the high schools will allow our young people to grow in a holistic way.
1: Super. Steve, if we you know if we think back to let's say when, when you were in high school, mm-hmm. uh, you you know, kids all go through this identity stuff and groups and so on. Right. How has it changed? In that period of time, how is it different than it was when you were in high school? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, let me uh, let me go a little bit into my upbringing. So, you know, both my parents immigrated uh, from another country, and they were teenagers when they had me, and so not a lot of support uh, in terms of raising my brother, my older brother, and myself in a country where they didn't know the language. Uh, they worked in domestic services and really just did their best to provide opportunity for my brother and I. And so I, um, I'm very proud to say I'm a Head Start graduate. I had that ability to, to access that federal program um, and not only acquire language, but, but the curiosity that's important for, um, for academic success. And so I'll tell you, you know, school was fairly easy for me. I, I love schools, but the reason is because it's where I felt safe. It's where I was fed. It's where I was clothed. I mean, the lost and found was my my place to go get sweaters and jackets, and you know, a, a lot of this really is that the social determinants that we see to lack of access, and you know, despite my parents' ability to uh, to really uh, keep our family together, um, I did end up in the foster care system uh, before high school. And so I was very fortunate that my my abuela, my grandmother uh, called for me and she brought me home to Mexico. So I actually was in high school in Mexico. Mm. So um, before I I made that transition, you can imagine. So I think I was 11 or 12 when I was in in foster care. But I was recruited for everything but college at that age. I mean, you name it. you know, sex trafficking, drugs, gangs. I mean, it was prolific in the community that I grew up in, and it was. What a teacher, uh, Miss Muka, um, who rests in peace, um, who taught me that there was another way, right? Um, and so she committed to me, and you know, she she stayed with me throughout most of her life, um, and I remembered that. And so, for me, when I think of our young people, and I think about the high school experience. It is much more dangerous to be a, a, a high schooler now. There's so much more in the community, and I would even say middle school and elementary school. So uh, the charter schools in um, that I lead are elementary school, and I see some of the same um, issues that high schoolers in my time were dealing with, um, and that was not even living in the U.S. So, um, so I'm conflicted. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful that. Um, we need to look at our, our young people and give them access to information and help partner, partner with parents for that success of the family.
2: Yeah, Leads me to another question here. How can we best address the current false narrative around critical race theory?
0: Yeah, yeah. This is a troubling one for me. Um, I believe that whenever there's divisiveness, and certainly we have devices, divisiveness in politics. You know this this part partisan acrimony, right? Um, that we we need to have weapons, and critical race theory for me is one of those weaponized elements that keeps us uh, divided, that keeps us on the attack or on on the um, on the defensive. And so I'm saddened that. We're taking uh, a notion of teaching history teaching facts to our young people and, and not only teaching them history, but teaching them that it's okay to question and it's okay to push back and to own space to really be curious about about the, their past or their family's past or their ancestors' past because ultimately the US was created on diversity it was created on on diverse notions and a place where freedom is the, the foundation of our democracy. And so for me, I, I'd like to see less weaponizing and more celebration of diversity, more celebration of who we are as human beings that bring us together, that, that are more our likeness than our differences, and really um, you know, building a, a mindset of critical thinking, of, of curiosity and just openness to understand.
2: That goes to a key word that was in that question that I actually should have taken out
0: Mm. to be
2: more fair. And that's this current false narrative. Mm. Um, Could you define from your perspective what that false narrative is?
0: Yeah, I would say from my perspective, the false narrative is that that it needs to be divisive, that it needs to be a weapon that that, uh, separates us. Because ultimately what we're talking about is um, the notion of talking about history and talking about history that that uh, brings people's experiences to the conversation, um, not in a way that is, you know, one way, one size fits all, but saying, Um, In our society, in our community, in our neighborhoods, these are some of the prevalent topics and we want to talk about them. Why? Because it's meaningful to the people that live in our community, which then takes me back to the, the philosophy in which kind of binds me in critical race theory is that local communities know what's best for their neighborhoods and for their families. And so when we're taking something at the state and we're saying, you must do this because we believe that this is the right thing to do. It takes away the authority and the accountability of local communities to decide. And um, and when so when you say false narrative for me, it is that separation of local control and state mandates.
2: Awesome. Steve and I have been working on a principle. Steve, why don't you add to that uh what would
1: contribute to what we believe also
2: is a false narrative?
1: You know, part of this has to do with uh, one, of our, one of our missions is uh, that one of our guests very early on set out as kind of a challenge at seeking the whole truth together. Mm-hmm. And because of these, uh, as you call them, weaponized narratives, uh, I mean, truly, uh, we want to find out if we're sitting next to somebody in school, we want to know what their story is. We want to have them, and have them, I, the other word you use that I really appreciate is curiosity. Have them be curious about one another. And when there is a top-down imposition, there always is resistance. Right. When it's something that people realize in their seats, go, you know, we really want to find out about each other. We want to find out about one another's history. That's that's really important. One of our guests early on was Tom Hartman, hmm. and he talked about... Uh, the uh, indigenous, the, the, he called it the lost, uh, the lost people. He was talking about the indigenous people of Europe, mm. whose history got obliterated thousands of years ago. They don't know their own true roots in, uh, as indigenous people, because you know, we were talking about Native Americans and so on who are much closer to that uh, chronologically. And so in a certain regard, in, in this um, divide and conquer world that we live in, um uh, most of us who would consider ourselves the ninety nine percent we have we've had it done to us our ancestors had it done to us. we have a lot more in common in that regard, and yet we're set one against the other and how do you how do you face that how do you if you're addressing a constituency uh, a very diverse one looking at that huge swath of land that you're uh seeking to represent, how do you talk about how to rehumanize one another in that context.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, it, it's difficult because the person um, receiving the information has to be open to it, right? And so, um, you know, there's, there's slices, there's windows of opportunity to really, uh, you know, bring in your, your truth. But one of the fundamental pieces for me is I believe in going to where you are right? Instead of you coming to where I am. And that's both in our physical space and intellectual space, uh, as well as our beliefs. And so I really approach relationships with that uh, open mindset of people. people's intentions are overall good. I mean, I'm not saying that there's not evil in this world. There definitely is. But people overall, their intention is good and their beliefs stem from their upbringing, their experiences, maybe some negative experiences that they've had. But unless you've Walked in their boots or rolled in their wheelchairs, you just don't know what their experiences are and what they bring forward. So for me, it's important to bring my experience forward. And even in this campaign, you know, I, I've been counseled, right? Of course. And you know, Marie, you know, maybe um, we should we should uh, you know play down your last name because it's you know it's it's very Latino, um, or you know maybe you should consider running as a Republican in a very red district because that'll relate to the voters more. And, you know, it's it's those notions of politics that um, has disengaged the everyday voter, the everyday constituent like like you and me in that we have to play a part in order for others to um, vote for you or for others to support you other than to bring forward who you truly are. And so I see that as I talk to constituents in that, you know I, I'll step into circles and places where you know just by my appearance or being a democrat people are surprised like what is she doing here why is she here but once we start getting into conversations and they realize that you know I I am here to to uh, be vulnerable right mm-hmm. and to to take off any armor um that would be that would protect me as as, as a candidate because I truly do believe in representation and ultimately I want the voters to get to know me because if they don't, then they're subscribing to a Democrat or they're subscribing to an educator or they're subscribing to a notion of who, who may represent them when oftentimes it, 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 it's, it's just, it's a pipe dream, right? So for me, that connection is important. The other thing is um, I have an equation as, as an educator, I think in mathematically, right? Um, I have an equation in that um, everything, in order to have true collaboration, to have true coalition, you have to have two things. You have to have relationship with partnership, right? Um, Other than that, all you get is transactions. And I'm not about transactional partnerships. I want that true authenticity, not only with my voters, but those who see me as colleagues in the state Senate. And I think that's the other reason that I've had such a large following uh, of endorsements now in the general from both the Latino Legislative Caucus, as well as the Women's Caucus, that has brought with me uh, about a quarter of of the legislators uh, supporting my campaign. And that is both on the Democratic ticket as well as the Republican ticket.
2: Wow. That's awesome. That's exactly why I said earlier you represent that poster child for the (laughs) Common Sense Party, because that is a it's about the quality person going to represent us And you can have a D label, an R label, an NPP, a G, whatever, that's fine. Everybody has that ideology, but what we need is quality people who will be open-minded, responsible, and inclusive to others uh, who can have the courage. And you demonstrate great courage to start from a place when everybody's mm-hmm. telling you with, with $5,000 against candidates who you knew were gonna raise Upwards of over a million dollars, right? And to say I'm going to put myself out there on the risk, get into the arena and fight because I believe that we can do better. And uh, and your belief in the education system, um, and that will lead me to the kind of the final question about education that I want to ask you at this moment. And That is, how can we best regain California's reputation and standing for our K to 16 public schools and public education,
0: right? Yeah, this, this is very perplexing. When um, I shifted from healthcare to education uh, about 10 years ago and uh, got involved in the charter school movement and uh, serving on uh, local public education boards, I was astonished. I was astonished by what the data was telling us and what parents didn't know. Mm. And so the data is accessible. I mean, it's, it's public knowledge, but as parents, we don't look at our local schools, as um, we need to do that, our homework, right? We need to we need to fact check and we need to uh, look at their outcomes. But the reality is that when children are bef- are be- are behind in math and literacy by third grade, it's going to be more difficult for them. Sometimes impossible for them to catch up to their peers. And so we're essentially creating this public education system that creates a divide right from the beginning when a child is so young that they're still trying to figure out their, their own identities. They're still working on socializing with their peers. And as parents, um, we're, we're doing everything that we can to help support our, our children in this path to success, whatever that path may be, right? So for me, I, I go back to partnership too. I I know that in order for our educators to be successful, they need to have partners with parents, right? And we don't, we don't uh, put that out in K the through, K through 12 system. We say, drop your kids off, we'll take care of them for a few hours, and we're gonna give them back to you, here's your homework packet. So think about that investment. So in, in our charter schools, in my charter schools, there is a commitment in that during the summer, parents, um, parents uh, meet together, they organize and they inform one another, not only on on the performance of our charter schools, but on the public schools around the charter schools. So that before they apply, before they enroll, they're informed on what, what the quality, the performance, as well as the culture of the school is. And so I think that's super important. The other thing is that during the summer, during professional development of educators, one of the requirements, and this is the beauty of, ha- of being in a charter school, is you can be innovative in your thinking. One of the requirements of our educators is to build that relationship with parents. And that means doing home visits. That means going into the neighborhoods, going into the communities, sitting in the living rooms of our parents and just getting to know who they are, who they are as people, who they are uh, as, as mom or dad or auntie, grandparent, uh, caregiver, and walk that community with them. And it's that essential connection that helps to build the bridge for our kids once school starts in the fall. And it also creates that uh, investment, that ownership, that we're in this together for the outcomes of our kids. Because ultimately, if we don't put kids first, that's what gets us in trouble in K through 12. So when we put the, um, when we put kind of like ideologies around um uh, politics, or um, if we put in um, like where affluent districts versus lower income districts are getting their money. I mean, it creates that divisiveness when the fundamental piece is, yes we need funding reform absolutely we need funding reform. But we cannot do that on the backs of our black and brown students, and our students with disabilities, we have to create equity in opportunity so that all of our kids can be taken care of, whether they're in a traditional public school, in a public charter school, or even in a private school.
2: You've touched on something that's that uh, I'm sensitive to, and that is about the funding mm-hmm. mechanisms that are set up today so that if you, and so if you're living in a quote wealthy community the financial advantage for your school district is huge. Uh, And that has to be revisited so that our funding uh, becomes much more broad based so that lower income communities have the opportunity to develop better school programs uh, that they can deliver deliverables for those kids as well. Uh, And that's why like, I live in Irvine now, and lived in Laguna, and people move from all over right. into those school districts because the schools are so, so good. But they're getting all this money that this stays right in the community. Uh, so it does contradict the the community versus the public, the broader. It's a, it's, but it needs to be rebalanced.
0: Right, right. No, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, it, it takes me back. Um, you know, my, my oldest is 26 years old now. And I, I had uh, two young babies. You, when my,
2: my, How yes, you, yes. <laughs> you know,
0: um, you know I, had, I had two young babies when my, when my uh, marriage fell apart and I became a single mom. And, um, you know, I remember going to the school district and asking, you know, um, you know, to enroll my child, because I, you know, I had a school that was uh, next to my, um, my home. But there was one that was closer to my work. And I wanted to be able to, you know, have that access. And I didn't know as a young parent that my school district, my, my school assignment was based on my zip code. Well, as you can imagine, you know, recently divorced, uh, single mom with two little, two little ones. You know, I didn't live in, 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 you know, more affluent area. I lived in a pretty low-income um, apartment building. And um, what I was told, uh, and this was probably something that wasn't meant to say, you know, because I said, you know, I have a, um, my, my child's biracial, he's he's Black and, and Latino, and um, he has some learning disabilities, and so I want the best school for him. And I was told that, more than likely, I was gonna to struggle to get uh, services for him. And because he was a minority, even more likely. And that hurt. That really stung as a young mother. And it got me angry, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, right. it, it, it lit up a, a fire in my belly to say, this isn't right. And so I probably didn't do the right thing. You know, I got a second job to make sure that my son can go into private school because I wanted to make sure that he had the best access to resources that teachers believed in him and that he wasn't just another black and brown face. Right. Um, But what that did is it took me away from my family. Right. I was working two jobs. And so it, it made my family suffer because not only did I have to have more people from the community help me now, my, one of my best friends lived right next to me. So, you know, she, she became auntie very quick. Um, But it, it, it put me in this position of having to be an advocate in in public education rather than being a mom. And so I lost that opportunity to sometimes comfort my child or sometimes, you know, just kind of enjoy the, the love of seeing my kids grow because I constantly had to be ready for for a conflict. I constantly had to be, had to educate myself to be ready to go. and And that I think is Again, where I think about privilege, you know, at that time, you know, I didn't have a college education. I went back to complete my, my degrees um, later in life, right? And so, again, I tell you, it was a bumpy road to getting here, but there was that stigma, right? That, that shame attached to, oh, you're a single mom of color, you know, raising kids of color and low income communities, you're just not gonna make it and your kids are not gonna make it. Well, that wasn't good enough. That wasn't good enough for me. It wasn't good enough for my kids. And it's not good about good enough for anyone, right? But yet we still have this public education system that assigns kiddos, assigns them to opportunities based on their zip codes. And that has to change.
1: Thank you. You know, as a, as a Democrat or as somebody who's been with the Democratic Party, um, because of how these interests work, and I was a teacher. That was my first my first early career. I was a teacher, and I was part of the uh, uh, teachers' union, as a matter yeah. of fact. And so how, how did this conflict develop? I mean, one would imagine, I, I certainly felt that way as a teacher, that I would want to have the best resources for every kid. I started an alternative high school right away. After one year in public school, my friend and I said, this this isn't working. We started an alternative high school. Uh, however, um, for those teachers who are in the school system, how how does this charter school thing work? And how did that how, how did that come about? How did this conflict come about? And right. how might we resolve that?
0: Yeah, well, you know it it's turned into kind of a, a union anti union thing, and that that's really not what it should be. Um, Charter schools were were born out of the, the, the Charter School Act of 1992 with the fundamental understanding that this was an opportunity for not only to build autonomous public schools, but to build schools where parents and educators could be partners in innovative, in innovative work, right? Mm-hmm. And so this was really a, a, a choice. It was an option um, to allow uh, public uh, school districts to provide an alternative right and so for me that is super valuable because this notion of you know um, the, the myths around charter schools you know uh, hurting communities and, and taking away from teachers I mean it, it simply is that weaponization again uh, of terms that create that divisiveness and so what is it really about so again I've, I've opened three charter schools in order to open a charter school parents and educators must collect signatures, just like you would a ballot initiative, right? You have to collect signatures of parents who will want to enroll their children. Maybe it's a year or two years, maybe it's three years down the line, but they're committed to organizing and making sure that there's this option, not only for their kids, but for kids after their kids. It's educators who are saying, yes, I'm willing to teach in in a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of resources. I'm willing to to work with kids with special needs. I'm willing to work with some of the the hardest kids, kids that particularly um, were were, uh, fallen through the cracks or written off like my son was written off because of uh, his socioeconomic status, because of, of a color of his skin, because of history, who knows why he was written off, right? But it still exists now. Uh, Language. Language is another barrier. So so for me, what charter schools really do is they provide an option. They provide an option for parents to say, I choose something different for my child and I want to be part of this. And so, um, you know, we have uh, unions in charter schools as well. We have unionized teachers. We have non-unionized teachers. Uh, What it is for me is what is that Phrase, what is that term that creates the divisiveness and creates the the haves and the have nots? You know and, and and some of our um, uh, our teachers' unions have created that rhetoric, you know, and, and that's been fundamental in in some of the political platforms that if you support school choice, you're not a true Democrat. And I'll tell you, I'm a true Democrat, I've been a Democrat, and I've served the Democratic Party, and I continue to do so. But I also believe in school choice because I've seen the success of it. I've seen it not only in my kids, but in thousands and thousands of kids. And I will continue to do so. And I'm not going to waver on that just because it's not popular with my party.
2: Shifting gears, because we could talk about education, which is such a crucial thing as a, as a parent and grandparent myself. Um, but there's a couple of other issues that I know that uh, you're... You're passionate about, and it's hugely important to California, and and your constituents. And one of them, uh, you mentioned as your one of your top three issues in place too. Because number one was education funding, safety, and excellence in public schools, which uh, is wonderful. I think we've covered that reasonably. Two, maximize water storage yeah. and efficient use to protect the agricultural recreation, and natural resources of California. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, um, it's no secret, like, I'm in love with California, (laughs) you know, uh, not just because I was born here, but, um, you know, I've lived up and down the state. I've had so many experiences here and been able to meet so many wonderful Californians, And it it really saddened me, uh, shocked me, actually, of the great resignation. People packing up, saying, forget California, um, you know, through COVID, whether it was because of high taxes, whether it was because of high regulations, um, uh, the cost of schooling, the cost of housing. And my grandbaby was born last year, November 30th. And it was one of those experiences that the reality hit for me that I may not be able to see my grandbaby grow up here in California because the cost of living, the cost of housing just to be able to, to be in California, the cost of food has, um, has risen to a place where our young people cannot afford to. Um, my husband and I have six kids, you know, uh, you know we have a large family, uh, all ranging from eighteen to 26, you know, those formative years of being a young adult. And not a single one of our kiddos can afford to live on their own. They all live with either a parent, uh, some with us, uh, with family members. And this is really the new California way that um, unfortunately, not only is is the California dream that that I grew up with that I was able to achieve so far for our young people, but it's it's that that thread of economy, that thread of our natural resources, that is continuing to drive inflation in a way that is unattainable for so many. So let me talk about water for a little bit. So we know without water, we don't live, right? That that is crucial. Without water, we don't grow food. Uh, Without food, we don't live. Without our our food economy, uh, our world economy for food, California ceases to be one of the most powerful economies in the world. So it's all interrelated. Um, California, we have the luxury of having the most beautiful landscapes of the West. You know, and I will argue, like we have the most beautiful state, not only in weather and diversity, but you know, you know, get in your car and drive my district, in Tahoe, um, over into the Sierra Nevadas. You know, Amador County where I am, and um, you know, into the Sequoias, uh, the 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 Mammoth Lakes, Inyo Valley, Death Valley. Um, it is it is an amazing landscape. And yet we're still fighting a century later around water rights and access to water and making this a uh, divisive California, right? Southern California versus Northern California Central versus all the others, right? And it it permeates that message that there's more that divides us than unites us. So when I talk about protecting those resources one, it's driving a narrative around common sense. It's driving a narrative around what matters to human life and, and how to carry that narrative into public policy. right? So I'm, I'm the type of person that will push back on what just doesn't make sense and ask the why behind um, decisions or, or the why behind uh, certain positions. And I don't think that California is used to that. I don't think um, I should say Sacramento, California leadership is used to that. But I'll tell you, we the people, we the voters, we thrive on that. We're thirsty for that. And so uh, for me, that is what's fundamental in our campaign is to make sure that that voice is what's resonating.
2: It's tragic to think how many years, I'm a second generation Californian uh, and it seems like my entire life, uh, this issue of water has been there and to watch our state legislature ignore that issue, give nothing but at best lip service to it for all of these years, and particularly in the last 20 years, as we're having these fires and other problems that are just dramatically increasing, and yet they still haven't got any new desalination plants. They haven't done the money that we passed in legislature that in bond issues to build infrastructure for water has never been spent where
0: is it? Where's that money?
2: Yeah. Uh, in Huntington beach, they just killed a couple of months ago a a desalination plant that the community is overwhelmingly behind. Mm -hmm. And for 25 years they have been trying to get it permitted through the state. And they again, turned it down 25 years just to get a stupid permit to do something that the entire community wants. And we need desperately. And that's just one example of, and that, the single-party state that we have, and every state is a single-party state almost in the whole country, uh, that our leadership has not done anything when they've had clearly the opportunity for many years. Right. Uh, and they haven't right. done it.
0: And, and I, I would take that a, a bit farther, Michael, and thank you for, for being bold in this, in this um, Q&A here, is that you know, the Central Valley for a long time has been written off because we just don't have the density. Right. It's those coastal communities of the voters. Right. Right. The density of the voters. And, you know, we have a large migrant population, you know, our farm worker population, our immigrant population. But the reality is that California has evolved. California is evolving. And just the simple matter of the fact that I'm on the ballot has shown the mindset of our voters that they've had enough. They've had enough of the horse trading in Sacramento to say, if you give me this, I will sacrifice that. And so, I mean, water being one of the most essential, essential pieces of it. And it's not that we don't have solutions. There's very real solutions. I mean, you just talked about Huntington Beach and the desalinization. The solutions are there. It's the acrimony. It's the the divisiveness that continue to plague us in Sacramento. And, you know, I, I will also say this, you know, we have appointed boards. We have appointed boards that are appointed by our governor to serve our governor and yes we all serve at the pleasure of of the people but ultimately it's to defend our constitution and it's to represent people in the district not not to just represent the values of our governor you know and 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 this isn't an anti newsome rhetoric at all this is about the position in power right and if you have that position in power as a party leader to appoint people to certain boards that make policy that impacts us at the local level and changes the way that we look at resources like uh, uh, water, food, forest management. That's that's a big concern because we, there's no balance. The legislature was formed to balance that power.
1: Steve, I don't wanna keep dominating with questions, but I've got to- No, it, it's okay. This is very, very interesting. And again, um, it must be very exasperating to see there are solutions out there and that can't be reached because of what you call horse trading without horses, naturally, because we're, we're beyond all horses. Yeah. But uh, um, so I want to get back to that that letter, that outreach letter that you wrote to the Common Sense Party. Right. What was it that sparked your interest in the Common Sense Party? In Wanted you to feel, hey, I affiliate with this, and, and perhaps together we can we can create something that'll break the deadlock and bring people right back into you know, the missing piece and government of the people, of course, as the people. So, how do we? Uh, so, what was it about the Common Sense Party that sparked your enthusiasm?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, what I saw before. Um before filing uh, to run as a, as an independent thinking candidate under the Democratic ticket um, in this election, I saw uh, six Republicans uh, vying for the Senate district seat. It's an open seat. There's no incumbent. And um, I studied all of them. I looked at their backgrounds and there wasn't much diversity um, in, in, in their thinking. Um, and they were all going off to kind of like one pot, which is you know Stanislaus County, which is the the base of the vote in Senate District Four. But there wasn't a lot of thought for all the other twelve counties. And so for me, that was my my first concern: is oh, you know, we're we're headed into election where uh, where the density of voters is going to going to uh, kind of move policy. It's going to be the the of mm. policy. And being in Amador County, having neighbors in Calaveras, El Dorado, Placer you know, even water issues were divided on, right? And so I was looking for a unifier. And so uh, I, knowing that I was not gonna be endorsed by the Democratic Party and and could have the ability to um, speak on behalf of the people, to speak in the middle, the center, um, question um, uh, ideologies. um, You know, I I found it very lonely. (laughs) (laughs) You know, frankly, I found it very lonely and um, knew that I wasn't the only one. I was doing the math. I was looking at the percentages of no party preference voters and knew that for some reason people were leaving uh, the parties. And so, um, you know, being kind of a data analyst myself, I started asking those questions and talking to voters. um, And that's what really, uh, you know, catalyzed me to get involved in this race because I knew that I could continue to be my authentic self talk about what's important to voters, and ultimately move a message, carry the narrative in a way that was uh, truth to self, um, underscoring representation and saying, win or lose, I wanna be happy with the direction this campaign took and those who believed in the campaign, not only put their names of endorsement, their financial um, backings, but also who aligned and said, this is the direction that we in California need to go and we're going to support it win or lose because it is the right thing to do. And ultimately the, the voters, we have to trust
1: that they will do the right thing as well. You know, that that's really interesting. And Mike, maybe you want to ask about this because we talked about it earlier. Um, you know, how has your life changed? I mean, you went from, you know, no, but nowhere to all of a sudden you're the, you're the, uh, the second contender, and you're in the race for the fall.
0: Right?
1: Have you been approached by uh, other by uh, other political parties or forces? What is how is your um, per, the perception of you changed since uh, you won that came in second in the primary?
0: Right. Right. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, I'm, I'm still working full-time and campaigning full-time. I'm still mothering full-time and grandmothering (laughs) Mm part-time, you know? Um, But, you know, again, that, that's who I am. You know, uh, one obstacle for me just means, you know, what one more problem to solve and to move forward. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I will say that my, my phone started ringing off the hook uh, the day of the election, actually the all throughout the night. And, um, it was, it was humbling in that, uh, you know, I knew i you know, I already put my cell phone out there and it was like, okay, but that's okay. Accessibility is important to me. Um, so my phone started ringing, um, mostly for the right reasons. Congratulations. And I want to hear more about you. Um, I did a story with, with Cal Matters, just being very frank, you know, <laughs> um, about who I am. And, um, you know, when I was being kind of cast as the Oh, you were lucky, or um, you know, you just kind of snuck in there. Um, you know, I pushed back and said, "No, I actually did math. You know, I ran the statistics, and and I had the conversations, and and I campaigned based on what resonated with the voters." So, you know, no, I didn't just slide in there. I was, I was uh, truth to self and truth to our, to truth to our district. And the reason I know this is because weeks before um, when my opponent's campaigns that were heavily funded, I mean, one campaign had three quarters of a million dollars against my my 5,000 at that point, (laughs) was running polls and they were running commercials. And I was coming up number one on everyone's polls. Why? Right? Um, And so that's when things started to get kind of scary for the parties because both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party leadership, both leadership put... Uh, money into a pot for mailers to knock me out of first place and they were successful. I ended up in second place, but there were messages around trust about the, my, the Democrat, democratic leadership doesn't trust this candidate. And they had my picture on there kind of all grayed out and um, yeah, they went with that and yes, they successfully knocked me out of first place, but only about a uh, 2.3 points away from first place. Hmm. So what that showed me is that this campaign Going to go the long haul, and I didn't need to change who I was. I didn't didn't need to put an R behind my name to win in a red district. I didn't need to change my values or my website to to, uh, speak voter talk, right? So that I can just get in the door and just win. No, I want the voters to vote for me because I can truly represent them, and if they decide to vote for my opponent, then that's what democracy is about, and I want to be. I wanna know that the integrity that I came in with is what I'm coming out with because ultimately I love my life. I love my job. I love my family. And this campaign has taken me away from things that truly give and fill my cup um, and have taken energy out. But I don't see it as something negative. I see it as investing that energy into my community, investing that energy truly into building those relationships in my community that you know are, are part of who I am and part of being a good neighbor and part of, part of being a public servant. What you just
2: explained about the the primary vote with the six Republicans and two Democrats exemplifies why it's not a perfect system, but why our top two tier takes away this entire argument about being a spoiler. It functions, it's the California original version of what became ranked choice voting. Because in your district, People weren't having to choose between either or Right. at the primary. They were able to place their votes and those who were in ideological camps and don't want to go beyond the ideology of the, of the leadership of their party stayed in those camps. But the overall people voted and they were able to place their votes on eight different candidates and... The ranked choice voting said you were right there near the top, almost at the top, just a couple percentage points down. And now when the voter moves to the general election in November, it's no longer a lesser of two evils. They now have a quality candidate. Those people who six candidates that were their first choice, because right. they didn't get to rank them, but they did get to place one vote. Now those candidate those uh, six uh, candidates, voters, now have to say to themselves, wow, I'm not voting for the lesser of two evils. I'm not only voting having one extreme or the other extreme to vote. Now I have a quality individual who I can vote for. And so hopefully the people in District 4 will look at it and say, wow, I have an opportunity now that, that top two gave me to actually go and vote for somebody who's not adherent to orthodoxy and a leadership of a party. They're truly there to represent me. So now, theoretically, all of those people who are NPPs and who are moderate uh, Republicans will all say, I've got a good candidate to vote for now. She may carry a D behind her name, but she is a common sense Democrat that I can get behind and support and know I'm helping elect a quality individual to represent all of us, not a small segment. And not certainly not the leadership or the special interests, so, right?
0: Right. You no know, and, and Michael, it's 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 exciting, and I say this to everyone: Senate District Four is the race to watch, right? Um, because yeah. this is truly seeing the 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 uh, um, the two the two party uh, primary unfold, right? Because the whole intent of it was to allow people like me, who your neighbor, your community pe- person, your your public servant, your mother. Um, to run for office because I'm qualified, because I, because I also have experience and want to serve, right? It's not, a, it's not a need to serve. It's not about power. It's not about climbing the political ladder. It's about dedicating myself for the next four years as the next state senator to public service, you know, which takes away from whatever other things in my life because I love, again, I'm in love with California and I'm committed to seeing Senate district four take a different direction.
2: Yeah, so, versus having, let me interject. You said something again, I want to elaborate briefly on, and that is they didn't climb a candidate that didn't climb the political right. ladder, proving their loyalty to the leadership and then getting promoted up from the assembly. Now I get the opportunity. Now I'm going to represent the party at the Senate level. No, we want people there who will represent the people.
0: That's right. That's right. And, and I'll, and I'll tell you, you know, this has also been a, a, a journey in navigating both the Republican Party and, and the Democrat Party. And, you know, let's just be very honest, if I would have filed as an independent, no party preference, libertarian, Green Party, um, if that would have been my, my platform, there would be no way I would be having this conversation with you because here in California, we don't we don't have the ability to not be red or blue. Uh, we have the ability to be purple and, and succeed um, on, on a ballot of, of this, of this um, level. So it, it's really important to, to have this conversation because these this has been the one-on-one conversations that I've been having with leadership in the Democratic party as well as leadership in the Republican party, right? And there's a split there's a split in terms of my candidacy. And you'll see that I have been endorsed by um, strong notable leaders on both sides, right? And so this is is kind of pushing back against the status quo and saying, okay, you know, Marie has values that truly represent our district. I can see her as a colleague that I want to work with, that I know I can work with versus I'm forced to work with, right? Mm. As the state senator, um, in my district, I would be working with six different assembly members can you imagine if we had seven minds that were working together for the betterment of the people in our district what we could accomplish in both houses. That is phenomenal, and so I take this very I take this as, as a responsibility to be true um, to be transparent. And you know, ultimately, you know, I, I know that there's there's studies on both the Republican side and, and the Democrat side of, of what relates to voters. And and I'm gonna just go back to trust, right? I'm putting the trust in the people that we, that we are ready to truly serve in Sacramento in a way that represents our family, our neighbors, our community, and our 13 communities.
2: In our limited time left, Steve, any final questions? Otherwise, I think. We should call it a wrap.
1: Oh, that said it all. I think the last part, I think that people have been, they haven't even been able to articulate what they want, what we're looking for, and to have somebody step forward and be the poster adult, we'll say now poster adult for this. <laughs> <Yeah, yeah, laughs> right. this. you have just grown up. So it's only been an hour. You've already grown up.
2: And, and right. uh,
1: to be the poster adult for this so that people go, I want, I want what she's got. Uh, yeah. Rather than settling for Uh, these two narratives where, as we had discussed earlier, uh, Lucy will always pull the football away when Charlie Brown tries to kick it. And I think that people have been tired of that and they're looking for a voice that of authenticity that really is authentic. So uh, thank you. We wish you the best. We're in support of you and uh, a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank
0: you, Steve. You mentioned Lucy Van Pelt, who is an icon of mine growing up, and, and now into my adulthood. And a, a quote, one of her famous quotes, and this kind of represents the 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 partisan politics. She says, "I thought I made a mistake. Wrong. I thought I made a mistake once, but I was actually wrong."
1: There <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have
0: it.
2: And with that, Maria, thank you so very much, and thank you for those uh, who are watching us. Uh, And if you're watching on the Locals platform, please consider becoming a supporter uh, so that Steve and I can continue our work and continue to pay our rent. Uh, (laughs) That helps. And if you're watching on YouTube uh, or any of our other platforms, the podcast is available in audio. Please subscribe. And as everyone tries to say, please share and tell your friends about it. But we must say goodbye here today from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields. It's a long journey to the more beautiful and just world that our hearts know is possible. Let us go there together. And with Marie's help, we'll move along a little faster. Thank you so much.